here this afternoon that obviously you paid attention to the notices that we have an afternoon service today. Hopefully we don't have too many people showing up at 6 o'clock tonight because they, they missed the notice. Um, we will be doing the afternoon service like we have past years on the first Sunday of the month through March, I believe it is, as we've been doing to make it easier to drive in the dark for uh, those who may want to come for the Lord's table on the first Sunday of the month. We will do that for the next several months here. And as Dell already mentioned, we're doing things a little bit different this afternoon. I believe our sermon text will help us appreciate the Lord's table a little bit more. So we're going to have our sermon this afternoon before the communion time. Uh, aside from a few children here this afternoon, I'm sure all of us have had times of discouragement in our lives. Our children probably have even had discouragement. There's probably at least once or twice they've been told they cannot have something they wish to have. And, and they find great discouragement in such things. Right, Nate? <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> Most of our children would consider such things discouragement, right? Life in the sin-infested world is filled with heartache and pain. It's, it's not unusual to go through times of discouragement and, and times of despair. Maybe you're in one right now. I don't know. I don't know all the situations that all of you are going through. Hope, hopefully, you've in your life also had times to experience upswings, though, where, where you're on the other side of despair. You, you've, li- <coughs> excuse me, you've lived through the change that, that comes when your disappointment is replaced with hope and joy once again. Well, this afternoon, it's that process that we're going to watch Jonah go through. Jonah is going through the process of going from discouragement to hope and joy. And as we watch him go through that process, we'll learn how to get through the transition effectively and and without delay in our own lives, I I believe. If you're here today and you're in the middle of discouragement, the loss of Jonah is very pertinent to you right now. For, For the rest of us, what we learned from Jonah here this afternoon should help us appreciate the Lord's table more fully. It should also prepare us for future times when we too will undoubtedly face additional periods of discouragement and in situations that, that cause that, that despair in our lives. Last week we began looking at this very familiar story of Jonah. I mentioned last week that, that despite what immediately comes to all of our minds when we hear of Jonah... The story of Jonah is not really about a big fish, at least not in the way our biblical author, our inspired author, has carefully constructed the story that we have in our Bibles. The fish is only mentioned three times in the entire book, in three verses, and it's mentioned in the most general fashion possible. Is not the concern. The, the storm that we looked at last week plays a, a much more central role in, in the story than the fish as far as the author's concerned. Chapter 1, the, the portion that we looked at last week, it recorded Jonah's misguided attempt to, to flee from the presence of the Lord. The Lord told Jonah, a, a man who, according to 2 Kings chapter 14, a man who'd served God as, as a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel, God told this man to deliver a message to Nineveh, the the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Well, Jonah received that message and immediately went the other way, sort of the way we respond sometimes to the Lord's messages. Uh, We hear from God, we're to do one thing, and we 
do the opposite. Well, Jonah immediately travels in the other direction. God hurls a storm at Jonah. They eventually led to Jonah being hurled into the sea. And just when we think that Jonah is about to die, God sends that infamous fish and Jonah is swallowed. We we wrapped up last week with verse 17 of chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish. There's one of the times the fish is mentioned. A great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. So one of the three verses that mention the fish is already covered. And that really is a good place for us to pick up the story this afternoon. The, the verse I just read, verse 17 of chapter 1, in the Hebrew Bible is actually verse 1 of chapter 2. Last week we saw how verse 17 balances out chapter 1 nicely. Well, the same verse also balances out chapter 2 very nicely. It, it's one of these hinge verses between the, the, the scenes of the story. So let's pick up Jonah's story and read through our text for today. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you have ca- had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I avowed I will, pray, will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now we've seen all three verses that, that speak of the fish, the general aquatic animal of some large size. That's, that's all we can tell from the verse that mentions the fish. The surprising thing, when we come to this section in verse 1, what we're supposed to be surprised by is the, the simple fact that Jonah is alive. That's surprising. The significant thing that's lifted in verse 1 is that Jonah prays. It's only here in verse 1 of chapter 2 and in chapter 4, verse 2, that our author uses the word pray. In every other instance, when a prayer of some sort is being made, our author uses the verb to call, call on the Lord. You may remember last week that everyone other than Jonah prayed. Jonah was told to pray, but we have no record anywhere in chapter 1 that he actually did. The author uses the verb pray now, the verb to pray. He uses that so that we will note that Jonah is suddenly willing to to pray. We're surprised that he's alive, but it's significant that he prays. Finding himself alive in the belly of the fish has finally gotten Jonah to the point where he prays. Clearly, verses 2 through 9 form the heart of our text this afternoon. 
in most of your Bibles, I, I would anticipate that these verses look different than the verses around them. That, that's because the verses that, that record Jonah's prayer, they do so in a poetic form. They're, they're much like the Psalms. They're, they're poetry that's been structured in the Psalms. Many of our po- or the poetry in the Psalms are actual prayers recorded to God. Well, that's what we have here. And, and this poetic form sets Jonah's prayer off from all the narrative that, that, that surrounds the prayer, the, the narrative that, that records his story. So if you, you're... Bibles look different, it's probably reflecting that poetry. My, my plan this afternoon is to look at this prayer in three sections. The, the first section, verses 2 through the, the first half, if you will, of verse 6, that section focuses on Jonah's descent, his descent. I, I don't believe I mentioned it, I'm pretty sure I didn't mention it last week, but one of the things our author, whoever our author was, we... Remember, we have no idea who wrote the book. But one of the things our author has done is creatively cast Jonah as continually moving in downward direction. Not only did Jonah go in the opposite direction from Nineveh, we know that from the locations, from looking at a map, but not from what the author said. The author continually cast Jonah moving downward. In verse 3 of chapter 1, he went down from Joppa. In verse 5, he went down into the hold of the ship. Lastly, we're thrown into the sea that would be a downward direction again. And, and that trend continues in the, the beginning of the prayer as now he cries from the depth of Sheol in verse 2 of chapter 2. He's cast into the deep in chapter 3. Ultimately, he, he descends to the roots of the mountains in, in verse 6. That, that phrase, roots of the mountain, this is the only place in the Bible that that phrase shows up, but it probably means the, the lowest depths of the sea, as, as a lot of times the, the mountains were pictured of having their foundation at the bottom of the sea and rising upward. So the author is continuing this downward descent. Jonah is physically headed down, 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 down. Emotionally, he's probably on the same tra- tra- trajectory. That's what the author seems to be indicating, wanting us to think that he's moving downward in every facet. Jonah begins his, his prayer then in verse 2, acknowledging that, that he had called out to God and is distressed. It is placed in the past tense there in verse 2, I called out, past tense. Most likely that refers to a prayer that, that is unrecorded. One that, that Jonah uttered as he was hurled into the water. Remember, the prayer we're reading here is while he's in the belly of the fish. But apparently he, he prayed as he was hurled into the water. Surely Jonah anticipated that his life would end shortly when he struck the waves. And he had no hope at, in his mind of avoiding the, the death of drowning. In what he believed was his final moments of life, he had cried out to God. In Jonah's mind, at the time he cried out, he was already a resident of Sheol. Sheol is the Old Testament name for the place of the dead. He, in his mind, he was already there. He, he likely cried out to God because he feared that God would abandon him in Sheol, that he'd be separated from God forever. And now, he's in the belly of the fish and he's reflecting from the belly and realizes not only... Is he still alive? Not, not only did he not die, clearly God's plan involves him living longer. He, does, he anticipates that there will be more after this. God had sent this fish 
to preserve his life. This is a miracle. He hadn't expected it because it doesn't happen that, that fish swallow people and they live. Yet, that's where he finds himself. So he anticipates that from, from this, upon little reflection, the fact that he is alive at this moment means there's more life to come. I, I know we, we all want to know how the time in this fish worked out. There, there's endless speculation about how could he survive in the fish? How was Jonah able to get swallowed by great fish of, of some kind? How could he live there for three days? Many of us have probably heard speculations that, that try to explain how this could happen. My question is, can't we just leave it as a miracle? God did something. Why, why do we want to try to explain a miracle? The, the, the same God who controls the elements of nature to create a storm when he decides it's time for a storm to occur and have that storm go where he wants so it will stop Jonah on his, his ship. The, the same God who commands a fish to, to go do what he wants to do, that, that's the God who is more than able to preserve Jonah's life as he wants. How God accomplished it is what the author told us. God commanded it to occur. He told the fish to do it. Beyond that, we're not given any details because that's not the point that God intends for us to dwell on. As Jonah reflects on his descent, he realizes that it was ultimately God who cast him into the water. Look, look there at verse 3. For you had cast me into the deep. Even though it was the sailors who, who physically picked Jonah up and, and tossed him over the, the side, Jonah realized it was God who had arranged this to happen. Ultimately, God was the, the source of him being thrown into the water. Jonah had determinedly tried to flee from God's presence, but he had failed completely in his effort. God had caught up with him, and God had cast him into the water. Jonah also recalls that when he hit the water, he had no hope. He, he could feel the currents of water surrounding him. He could, could feel the waves breaking over him. By the way, one thing that is interesting as we look here in this carefully constructed um, poetic prayer is how we can see the fact that, that Jonah is steeped in the word of God. Jonah did not have an Old Testament scroll with him while he's in the belly of the fish. I'm pretty sure of that. I don't have to speculate too hard to figure that one out. But he knows much of the word of God. He's attempting to flee God. He, he's attempting to avoid what God is doing. But that doesn't mean that he's unfamiliar with God's word. Many of the phrases in this poetic prayer echo phrases from Psalms. The, the final line of, of verse 3, for example, is identical to the final line of Psalm 42, verse 7. Jonah is steeped in, in, in the word of God that, that existed in his day. And the fact that his prayer would resonate with these Words and phrases of scripture shouldn't be that surprising because that's how we pray too. It, we often use the, the language of scripture in our prayers because it's in scripture that we learn truths about God. So when we're praying to God and we're, we're, we're praising him for truths we know about him, the language we use is language that taught of those truths. The word of God. Jonah is the same. Verse 4 seems to indicate that Jonah's initial thought as he's floundering in the waves, as I already indicated earlier, was that he's been completely rejected by God. God has turned his back on him. 
Well, that may sound familiar to some of us. My, my guess is a few of us at least have been there in our lives. I know I have. I've been there when I've resisted God's will. I, when I know based on my knowledge of Scripture that, that God would have me respond in one way to a situation and I stubbornly do something else. I know that at times I fear being rejected by God. Doing, doing what God wants generally means giving up sin that we enjoy. Usually there, there's a bit of pride, at least in my case, that I want to hold on to a little bit longer. So I reject God. I ignore God. I, I rebel against God. And God faithfully, lovingly brings consequences into my life. Yet the consequences are unpleasant. And my initial thoughts when I'm dealing with the, the pain of the consequences of my own actions, that God has allowed me to, to endure, to stop me from doing it, that my initial thoughts are, oh, woe is me, God is rejecting me. That's Jonah. He believes that he's been rejected by God. But at least his thoughts turn to God. Now as he finds himself in the fish, he realizes that he has confidence that, that he will actually worship again in the temple of Jerusalem. He expects, as outstanding, as astounding as it likely is to him, he expects that he will live to worship another day. Jonah remembers how the water overwhelmed him. He, he remembers sinking below the surface. He remembers getting tangled in the seaweed below the surface. He remembers descending toward the bottom of the sea. He remembers having no hope. He remembers utter despair. He says, the earth with its bars was around me forever. In other words, death had its grip on him. This is the culmination of Jonah's descent. Verse 2 through the, the first half of, of verse 1. The earth with its bars was around me forever. This is despair. This is despair speaking. Yet this is also the record of God working. That's why we're not surprised to encounter another of those magnificent biblical buts. There in the middle of verse 6. But... You have brought up my life. Jonah's turning point. Middle of verse 6 through verse 8. Jonah's turning point begins with the but there in verse 6. It, as I say, it runs through verse 8, but it's the but there. That but in verse 6 introduces this all-important contrast in this poem. I'm going to pause for just a moment. I'm Put, putting a plug-in for my own Sunday school class that, that may be a little unseemly, but I'm going to put a plug-in for Sunday school class that, that I'm planning to teach next quarter starting in January. It's going to be a, a class on grieving biblically. Uh, really, it's a class on biblical lament. Laments are how we learn to grieve biblically. The, the core of the class is learning really to look for these all-important buts Butts in the Bible and butts in our lives, where we come to that lowest point and God acts. The, the path to, to grieving well is learning to look for God's actions when we hit this point, the low point where we say, But God, something. So that will begin January. 
Anyway, back to our text here. Joan of Descent is suddenly and dramatically arrested and reversed. He's going down. He's going down. He's sinking to the depths of the sea. He's coming to the bottom there. He's seaweed all around him. He's going down, but God brought him up. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. In other words, even though Jonah at this moment when he's meditating on all this and thinking back to to this moment, even though he's in the belly of the fish, at this moment he knows that God is the one preserving his life. The New Living Translation captures the idea nicely. It says, it translates this last phrase of verse 6, But you, O Lord my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. Certainly a dynamic equivalent translation, but gives the idea well. It's significant that, that Jonah addresses God as, O Lord, my God. First, he, he uses the covenantal name by which God is known to Israel. You've got that capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, that, the, the covenantal name that God has given for Israel to use. It's the, the same name that, that Jonah used in chapter 1 when he explained, if you recall to the pagan sailors, that it's the, the creator God, the God of the Hebrews. He's the creator God. He's the one who brought this storm. Now Jonah uses that name when he refers to God. And second, more significant though, Jonah says, my God, Yahweh, my God. Yahweh is Jonah's personal God. Jonah is no longer running away from God's presence. He's claiming God now as his personal God. In fact, in hindsight, Jonah realizes that he turned to God. He, 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 he addressed his personal God. He turned to God in his moment of extreme distress. He had to get to that very moment of extreme distress to call out to God. As his life was fading and death was approaching, he remembered the, the Lord. That, that word remembered in verse 7, it, it doesn't mean that Jonah's forgotten who God was up to that moment. And Jonah was not suffering spiritual amnesia or anything of that nature. After all, chapter 1, Jonah had told the sailors that Yahweh is the one who brought this storm about. He, he knows of God. What the, what the word remembers means is that Jonah focused his mental attention on God. Uh, we find this word often used of God, and it says that when God remembers someone, God focuses his energy, his attention to do something. It usually means that the focus is for a purpose of action. Well, here, when death was approaching, Jonah focused his mental attention on God so that he could pray to God. At the moment that he prayed, Jonah had complete confidence that his prayer reached God in his holy temple. In other words, he knew God heard him. It wasn't that Jonah immediately expected that God would save his life. He had no hope, but he immediately knew that God had heard his prayer. He was not rejected by God. In verse 7, Jonah uses the identical phrase they used at the end of verse 4 for the temple. He says, into your holy temple. In verse 4, Jonah referred to the temple in Jerusalem. That's where he anticipated that in the future I will be able to worship again in, in Jerusalem because I'm still alive. But here in verse 7, he's thinking of God's heavenly abode. To Jonah, there, there'd be a direct link between the two. He, 
He would not have thought for a moment that, that God was confined to dwelling in the physical temple in Jerusalem. Jonah knew that God was present in the storm. He was present in the ocean. He was present everywhere. It's rather to an Israelite like Jonah that the temple in Jerusalem was a specific place that God allowed a worshiper to connect to the heavenly abode where God dwells. They could connect through sacrifice at that physical place. God was not constrained to that, that single location, that single connection, but it was a unique place where they could manifest their worship of God. Jonah recognized and knew in, in, fully that, that God could hear his prayer just as easily while it was offered as he sunk in the sea as it would be heard if he was standing in the temple of Jerusalem when he prayed. So Jonah, when he was sinking, prayed to God. And now as he reflects on that, he thinks about his reaction to, to this extreme despair, his, his almost instinctive reaction of, of praying to God. He contrasts that with the pagans and their, their response. Obviously, the, the pagan sailors of chapter 1 would have been foremost in his mind. In, in Jonah, in verse 8, there is recognizing that, that when the pagans who are worshiping false gods, when, when, when they face despair, when they, they fear death, rather than calling out to the very end of their life to their gods, they forsook their god and they looked to other places for answers to their plight. His reaction was different. As his life was ending, he called out to God. In fact, it's interesting that at the end of verse 8, he says they forsake their chesed. Their chesed. We know that word chesed well. That's that Hebrew term that, that usually re, is used for God. God's chesed. His, his covenant loyalty. That, that action or that, that um, characteristic of God that moves him to work for the betterment of those with whom he has a covenant relationship. It speaks of God's faithfulness to act for the well-being of those that he has this relationship with. We, we often find it with God translated as his loving kindness, his mercy, his faithfulness. Well, at times that, that word can also be used to describe a, a person's loyalty and faithfulness to God. So here we have that same idea, the idea of covenant loyalty, but, but Jonah uses that word with the idea that those who are worshiping false gods, those who worship pagan, or the pagans that are worshiping idols of their own imagination, they abandon their covenant loyalty when they hit deep despair. They don't continue to worship their idols. In fact, he uses, we have the words in the New American Standard translated as vain idols. He uses two words. One of those words is the word hevel. If you were in the Ecclesiastes study on, on Wednesday night, you'll be familiar with that word. Hevel, it's the, the word for vanity. It means empty. It means vapor. It means meaningless. Breath. It's that vanity of vanities of, of, of Ecclesiastes. Hevel, hevelim. Well, Jonah uses that same word. He essentially, he writes that those who, who worship breath or vapor, they, they abandon their loyalty to those ideas because there's nothing undergirding it. It's just words that they have. They have no substance. The point that he's making is that when push comes to shove, 
then when, when literally life is on the line, those who worship false gods or empty idols, they, they abandon their meaningless gods rather than remain loyal to them. The, the other word means empty contrast or empty despair, extreme despair. So there, he, he's saying there, these vain idols is how we translate it, is just empty meaninglessness. By contrast, Jonah knew his God, Yahweh, the Lord, the one true God. When, when Jonah reached the point of extreme despair, he turned to God, not away from him. And God graciously heard him and, and sent this fish that he's living in to, to rescue him. Which brings us to the final verse of the prayer, Jonah's conclusion. Chapter 1, you, you may recall, ended with the sailors celebrating. They, they celebrated their deliverance by offering sacrifices and making vows to God, to Yahweh specifically. They were uh, offering sacrifices and making vows to the, the Hebrew God that Jonah had introduced them to. Well, Jonah now has his own moment of experiencing God's power to rescue him from death. So, so Jonah likewise promises to offer sacrifices and, and fulfill the vows that, that he's made. He, even though Jonah is in the belly of the fish. He knows God is preserving his life. He's thankful. And he commits himself to displaying his thankfulness through, through acts of worship. Jonah does not seem to have any doubt by the time we come to verse 9 that, that he will see the light of day again. There, there's no fear that he will die in the belly of the fish. Instead, there's this great final statement that, that brings the entire prayer to his pinnacle. Salvation is from the Lord. Only the Lord, Yahweh. Only the Lord can deliver one from death. Salvation is from the Lord. Jonah has completed an emotional and intellectual 180 at this point. As he was thrown into the water, his, his thoughts had been entirely upon himself, his plight and his abandonment from God. Now, on the other side of that divine but, his thoughts are entirely upon God, the God who provides salvation. Jonah now has hope because he is now focused on God, not himself. We have no idea how much of the three days it took for Jonah to reflect on, on his situation and reach the, this proper mental point where we see the record in the prayer here. We, we don't know how much time he spent in the belly of the fish meditating on this glorious idea. For that matter, I don't even know if he composed the poetic aspect of, of his thoughts when he was in the belly of the fish. All, all we do know is that his total time in the fish was three days and three nights. And then God commanded the fish to relieve itself of Jonah in, in the most unceremonious manner. We, we have the word there in verse 10 that he vomited Jonah out. Well, that word vomit is a coarse word. When, when it's used in the Old Testament, it's used every time to create an image to arouse disgust. Um, in, such as, for example, Isaiah 19.14 and Jeremiah 48.26 where it describes a drunk man vomiting to, to arouse the disgust that comes from extreme drunkenness that, that produces vomit that then the man falls in. 
In Leviticus 18.28, the words used describe how God will spew the Israelites from the promised land. He will vomit them out of the promised land if they do not worship him, if they worship false idols instead. This was no gracious exit that Jonah was given. That's the easiest way to say it. And the fish simply did as God commanded, and our author then puts the focus on God who gave the command. God, or the Lord, Yahweh, commanded the fish. That's where the focus is. The God who provides salvation. Salvation is from the Lord. The Lord commanded the fish. Folks, it's within this central idea that God is one who provides salvation that we find our truth this afternoon. The, the way I would word it is this. Hope comes in trusting that salvation is from the Lord. Our truth is that God is the one who provides salvation. Our hope lies in God and in nothing else. Hope comes in trusting that salvation is from the Lord. Now, the problem is that all too often we fail to have genuine trust in God. It is when we come to understand this truth that that despair will give way to joy. I remember a particular time when I saw this truth play out before my eyes in the emotions of a young woman. The, the, the woman was very discouraged. Her, her life was difficult, and there's no, I mean, that's the easiest way to say it. Her life was difficult. I'd been counseling her and her husband for a few weeks. Essentially, I'd been going through the exchange uh, gospel Bible study with them because they needed Christ. I, I remember the moment that she understood that God alone could offer her salvation. And she gloriously accepted Christ as Savior. I remember because she had been crying these tears of despair. And yet the moment she accepted Jesus as Savior, she understood that God had heard her in his holy temple, that he had received her. And through the tears of despair, a smile and joy erupted. It was unforgettable. Her, her life situation had not changed at all. She was still in the middle of the circumstances that, that had brought on her despair, but what had changed was that she had encountered one of these glorious divine butts. But God offered salvation. Just like what Jonah encounters in verse 6. Her life situations were the same, but God had saved her. I, I pray that for all of us here this afternoon, we've encountered that glorious divine but in our own lives. We were lost in sin, but God saved us. Our salvation is the real source of hope. Hope comes in trusting that salvation is from the Lord. A danger that all of us face, really, is that we are prone to forget this simple, basic, core truth. After all, that's what happened to Jonah. Jonah knew the Lord. Jonah had served the Lord as a prophet. But Jonah had turned his back on the Lord. He had tried to run from the Lord. He, he ran until his life was a complete mess. Uh, until death lay before him. It was only as he bottomed out in total despair that, that Jonah turned back to the source of hope. Once more trusting in the salvation that the Lord alone can give. Of course, our author has made it clear that it was the Lord who, who purposely arranged everything to bring Jonah to this point. 
just as the Lord does in our lives. We, we do not slide down the slope of despair by accident. We slide down the slope of despair because our God lovingly places that slope in our path. He, he purposely causes us to slide down until we hit the bottom so that we can hit this divine butt. And remember, once more, God is the one who saves. Hope comes in trusting that salvation is from the Lord. The trick comes in remembering this truth quickly so that, that God does not have to take us to the very gates of death before we change our thinking. The sooner we hit that bottom and find our divine butt, the, the sooner we can climb out of our despair. This afternoon, Jonah recalled this truth as death approached and, and his despair was full. Have you? Have you recalled this truth? Hope comes in trusting that salvation is from the Lord. If we know Jesus as Savior, we know this truth. In fact, this is the truth that, that we are going to celebrate in, in a few minutes when we take the elements of the Lord's table. We know this truth. But do we truly remember this truth? Are we focusing our attention on, on the only source of hope that, that will stand us through the trials of life? Salvation is from the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we've been able to spend with Jonah in your word today, the lesson that you've placed there for us. And now, Father, as we turn our thoughts to your table, I pray that you would continue to cause all of us to rejoice anew in the salvation that we have from the Lord. For it's in the name of our Savior we pray. Amen.